Welcome to the Runner's World Show, or for some of you, welcome back to the Runner's World Show after our one-week break. We are now part of the Panoply Network. I'm David Willey, and this week we head out to the track, but probably not the kind of track you'd expect. I mean the racetrack, for a look at the surprising relationship between running and NASCAR. Then in the kick, we bring things back to the more familiar oval for a preview of the upcoming Olympic track and field trials. They begin tomorrow in Eugene, Oregon, and I'm excited to say I'll be sitting right in the stands at Historic Hayward Field when they do. The trials really are one of my favorite things in the sport. It's day after day after day of great competition, household names, obscure athletes you've never heard of, all vying for spots on the Olympic team. And inevitably, something surprising happens, and just about every day, something inspiring happens. So we'll touch on a few storylines that will be worth following for the next 10 days. Thanks for joining us. Here at Runner's World, we love learning about how running enhances people's lives, about how being a strong runner can help you be better at just about anything else. We especially love hearing about the vital role running plays in people's professions, because some jobs, of course, require physical fitness. But it's not always the obvious occupations that spring to mind, occupations like race car driver. Our producer, Sylvia Ryerson, along with web producer Robert Reese, traveled to the Pocono Raceway in Long Pond, Pennsylvania, to run and talk with NASCAR drivers and members of their teams about why it helps to be fit and quick on your feet if you want to go fast on four wheels. So you guys run uh, together quite a bit? Uh, we, we have uh, this season, because he's been training for his 5K, so I kind of ran with him a little bit. But he's been running a lot more than me, so <laughs> Trevor's, Trevor's in the peak run fitness at the moment. Nice. Landon took it pretty hard on me at Bristol, though. That's why I haven't run with him as much, because <laughs> I had a little progression run, and uh, he put a hurting on me, so I was like, I didn't enjoy that at all. I think I'll just stick to my aerobic yeah. base training and let Landon go hurt himself. Exactly. <laughs> it was ridiculous. That's Robert, running around the infield of the 2.5-mile Pocono Raceway, known as the Tricky Triangle, with NASCAR drivers Landon Castle and Trevor Bain. They're both full-time drivers in the Sprint Cup Series, the top division of NASCAR, the best of the best. They're also both runners, part of a new generation of professional drivers who are using running to give them an edge. It's a Friday morning, two days before the 2016 Exalta We Paint Winners 400. 400 miles, that is, which means 160 laps of the track between 40 cars that are topping out at speeds of about 175 miles per hour. In a few hours, they'll race a qualifying heat to determine where they'll start on Sunday. According to Landon, super busy weekends like this make running even more important. I feel like it's in terms of complementing my race weekend, um, that, that ability to kind of settle in for 90 minutes in a run, kind of just reflect on how my car is driving, think about the race the next day. Uh, you know, obviously with a long, slow endurance run, I'm not focused on speed, so I'm not abusing my body. Uh, so, I mean, that's that's kind of why I do that, I, you know. Now, we're not the only ones. I mean, there are fans and obviously a lot of people in our industry that do what we do. Um, you know, there's, I think in the last few years, there's really been a push 
for fitness and racing. Yeah. That new push for fitness in NASCAR is why Robert and I are in the Poconos. We wanted to know more about how running can improve something like driving and why drivers like Trevor and Landon aren't just jogging a few miles a couple times a week. They're doing serious speed work and regular long runs. In fact, Trevor is training for a sub 25K and Landon is training for a half Ironman. So why is running so important for these guys? Trevor explains his motivation as a group of fans cheer him as he runs past. Even on my speed, obviously my first priority is to become a more fit race car driver. And so that's why we got into the triathlons, the cycling, the running. Our average heart rate in a race car because of the heat, adrenaline, G-forces, we're around 140 beats a minute during green flag, 140, 150 beats a minute. And so that's... A bunch. I'm 138 right now, there you go. so you know, I mean, it kind of matches huh. what we're doing, and uh, I feel like, you know, if you can be more physically fit, by the end, you're going to be more mentally fit when it counts on a green-white checkered, and you got to go for it. A green-white checkered is essentially NASCAR's version of sudden death. The cars slow down and get bunched up together because of an accident or debris on the track, and then they gun it to the finish with just three laps or less to go. But as Landon sees it, running also helps in more subtle ways off the track. I, I like, uh, it's a big confidence booster for me too and for my team, I think, because since I started training and being vocal about it, I know that for my team, there's not a doubt in their mind that I'm doing everything I can do to be the best driver I can be. Okay. And, and, and sometimes that's one of the best motivators for your guys to uh, to want to build you the best car they can build, as opposed to uh, them working all day in the shop on right. Tuesday and getting on Facebook and seeing that you're at the, at the lake. <laughs> Catching fish. Yeah. Right. Or even worse, sitting on the lake on a Tuesday drinking beer, you know? Later that afternoon, I meet up with Trevor and his hauler, Basically, his team's mobile garage. It's a trailer packed with gear and equipment. They even keep a backup race car in a special roof compartment. In 2011, Trevor won the Daytona 500, becoming the youngest driver to ever win the race, at the age of 20 years old and one day. That same year, Trevor started working with a trainer in his home state of North Carolina, training for triathlons. It wasn't until last year that he started taking his running more seriously. Standing in the hauler's narrow hallway, I wanted to know why. You know, this season I feel like is probably the most I've ever worked at it, and I feel like it's the most improvement I've seen, and I actually enjoy it a lot now, so that's, that's a big improvement for the mental aspect of it. That's great. And so what is your training schedule like these days? How much do you run in a typical week? Uh, right now I try to shoot for about 25 miles a week. Uh, it's kind of the number that I have time for. And, um, you know, my long runs are upwards of 13, 10 to 13 miles and my short ones are three miles or so. And, um, you know, I try to do aerobic and some uh, speed work a little bit. But, um, you know, I think the last three weeks have kind of tapered a little bit. I did Jimmy Johnson's 5K a couple weeks ago. Um, and, and that went pretty good, but I've got a lot to learn still and some speed to improve on. But I've really enjoyed that. And, uh, you know, I've thrown in some cycling now as triathlon season kind of gets here. So I'm going to try to maintain my running and improve on it some, but also, you know, add some more biking miles to that. 
And so, so how do you think running has helped you as a driver? Well, I think a number of ways. Uh, first of all, I don't think you realize that you're not fit until you become more fit and you see how you feel. Um, for me, I would have never said I felt tired at the end of a race. You know, 500 laps around Bristol, I would just say that was normal. I get out and I'm sweating and my head's hanging and I'm ready to, you know, get something to drink and go to the motorhome and sit down for a minute. Uh, but this year after the Bristol race, I got out and I still felt fresh and kind of jogged up to my motorhome and I was like, wow, this is way different, you know. Um, so I don't think I realized that I was at a fitness deficit until I've become more fit. So that's helped a lot. And then the mental aspect of it. Uh, I kind of run with no music. Um, every now and then I'll listen to a podcast or a sermon or something. But for me right now, I just run with no music to work on the mental aspect of pushing when it counts. And uh, I think people, we never disconnect anymore. We're always on our phones or we're watching TV or we're doing something on our computer. And so running for me is a good chance to kind of get away from everything. Uh, think about my race car, think about what's going on around me, think about people, relationships, whatever. So I enjoy that kind of disconnecting time when I get out on a long run. Do you think, do you analyze your races sometimes while you're out? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm pretty analytical. So it's hard for me not to sit there and think about my heart rate or my pace the whole time, really. I have to fight against like running dynamics and stuff. Uh, but when I, when I do have a free moment of thought, I'm thinking about my race car and uh, especially those Saturday long runs. Um, you know, I get to think and run for 10 miles or so and come back to my crew chief with all kinds of ideas. So it's nice. Yeah, that, that's so interesting. So I wanted to ask sort of like when you're racing a 5K, do you think it's similar to being on the racetrack or different? Or how would you compare the two kinds of racing? I would say our races are more like a marathon or a half marathon. Like it's more about endurance and being smart and pacing yourself and taking care of your equipment, um, taking care of your legs or your heart rate or whatever it is on a marathon versus a 5K. It's kind of all out like a sprint. Uh, so I'd compare that more to like the all-star race that we had a couple weeks ago where it was 20 lap segments and you had to just win to get to the next round. Uh, but I would say our races are more of a marathon, just really pacing yourself and making sure that you're there when it counts at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Would you talk a little bit more about sort of what are the physical pressures you're facing in the car? So our, our cars, uh, a lot of people don't realize what goes on inside of a race car. And uh, I encourage anybody that gets a chance to do a ride along, even in a two seater car to go see what it's like. Um, but what we kind of experience is a lot of heat. So um, at Indy, I think last year they had some thermometers in the car and we saw 155 degrees. So it's pretty hot. I think that does a lot to your heart rate for the elevation, uh, the G-forces, you know, repetitive G-forces. Okay, real quick. G-force refers to gravitational force. For example, an astronaut floating in outer space is experiencing less than one G. A race car driver hitting turns at full speed can experience up to three Gs. All that force means his head, which typically weighs about 15 pounds, now weighs about 45. It's exhausting, and drivers have to resist those forces while making split-second decisions at incredibly high speeds. Endurance and core strength is critical. Um, and then you're in one fixed spot the whole time. So when we're in the cars, we're really constrained, not a lot of uh, movement going on. You know, you can't even move your head. You have a Hans device on, you can't really move much. A Hans device is a head restraint. It connects the driver's helmet to a support that rests on their shoulders to keep the head from snapping forwards or backwards in the event of a crash. Um, that's another thing that takes its toll, your hip flexors, your shoulders, uh, just a lot of things have load on them the entire race. Um, loss of fluids, so you know, hydration's a big deal, and then the G-force load, I'd say are the biggest kind of 
things that have factors on our bodies. Wow. Yeah. Um, Robert told me you mentioned a little bit on your run with Landon about how as the race cars get more and more advanced, sort of physical fitness is becoming almost more important for drivers. Yeah. yeah. I mean, our cars are becoming more like airplanes, I guess. Uh, it's all engineering. It's all aero. It's all, um, you know, simulation. So a lot of stuff's happening on our cars during the weeks uh, that we don't have a lot of say in. It's all engineering driven. And as that happens, the field gets tighter and tighter. The, the group of cars get closer together. Um, used to a first place car would win by maybe a lap, you know, back in the 70s or 80s. And 30th place was off multiple laps. And now you see that the competition is so tight that every little advantage that you can get, whether it be fitness or your car being faster, it, it's very small. So we think that in any area you can push it and better yourself. You got to take advantage of it. I think the best guys are doing it. There are some guys in NASCAR who aren't necessarily taking fitness to the full extent, uh, but how much better could they be if they were fit at the end of a 500 mile race? I wanted to know if Trevor had noticed a difference in his heart rate while racing since he'd started running. His answer, pretty surprising. Two seasons ago, I wore a heart rate strap in my car to kind of see where I was at, and uh, my max heart rate hit like 173, and my average was in the 150s, 160s. Earlier this season, um, I went out with a heart rate strap at Dover now, it was a cool day, but it's a pretty physical track, and my max heart rate was like 144, I think, and the average was in the 120s, and so it's quite a big improvement, uh, and those are zones I've really been working hard at. Um, you know, my max isn't super high, so those low zones I've worked at quite a bit, and I, I think it's improved my, my fitness in the race car quite a bit. So here's what happened. The more Trevor ran and rode and swam, the stronger his heart got, which means it could pump more blood with every beat. With each beat delivering more blood, it doesn't have to beat as much. The result? A lower heart rate, even during intense racing conditions. To better understand why driving in a three-hour-long race is no jaunt down the highway, I asked Trevor to walk us through a typical event. Um, before the race, we're standing on pit road, and we've got sponsor obligations, fans coming up, we're signing autographs, taking pictures, and then they get to the national anthems. So that's kind of when everything slows down. They say a prayer before national anthem. I'm standing there with my wife and my daughter, who's almost six months old now. I hug my wife, give her a kiss, hug Ellie, give her a kiss, uh, go talk to my crew chief for a second, and then I get in the race car. Uh, from the time I get in the race car, we've got a lot of safety gear to put on. So I'm in a fire suit already and fireproof shoes. Uh, once I get in the car, we've got a nine-point seatbelt harness. So we're strapped in pretty tight. Um, after that, I put on my Hans device, put on my ear molds, put my helmet on, gloves, um, put some extra padding in around my head. And uh, at that point, you know, you're really thinking about how the race is going to play out. You're waiting on the announcer to say, gentlemen, start your engines. And at this point, it's really quiet. Uh, nothing's going on because everybody's getting their pit stalls ready. All the drivers are getting in their cars. So while it's quiet for a minute, I pray with my team and we talk about, you know, a couple things with my crew chief. Got me up there, Roman? Yeah, I got you. One, two, you got me, Trevor? Yes, sir. You got me? Yep, sound good, man. Well, guys, let's be disciplined today and just do everything we can to get a good finish. Um, I'm learning that that doesn't mean just going fast and uh, hopefully we can make some good adjustments and get this thing toward the front here. Good pit strategy, and uh, have a good day. So stay out of trouble today. Get a solid top 10, top 15 finish. Appreciate you guys. And sorry we had to sit around so much. And four. Time to go to work here. Just save the gas here. 
and then they'll say, gentlemen, start your engines. We fire it up. Uh, I'll sit there with the engine running for like two, three minutes and uh, make sure everything's working right. And then I cut it off to save fuel. And uh, then that's when everything kind of starts building. Uh, I could probably watch my heart rate start going up already before I ever do anything on the racetrack. Um, I'm probably at 100 beats a minute before I pull off pit road. So just the anxiety of the race coming on. This racetrack, as we get a green flag in the air and boogity, 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 let's go racing, boys! You know it's a long race, but you gotta be fast at the very beginning. For racing, once it starts, anything can happen. Um, you know, you can have a bad pit stop, you can have a great pit stop, you can blow a tire, you can be leading the race. And so it's really hard to plan for exactly everything. Um, but kind of my role as the race goes on is obviously to drive the race car, but it's also to communicate back to my crew what's going on. When we have a pit stop, um, the guys go over, they put on four tires and a full tank of fuel in 11 seconds. And during that 11 seconds, they also have a wrench that they can put in the back windshield of the car to tune the springs and a thing called a track bar, and that adjusts the car. Um, but that's all you can mess with, and air pressure uh, as the race goes on. When you're turning a corner, um, it's a big G-load, but I think it's something I've kind of gotten used to. I've been doing this since I was five years old, so 20 years into it, you kind of get used to some of the things and you don't think about it. Uh, but when you go to Bristol, Dover, some of the shorter tracks with high banking, you, you start noticing that G-load. Your neck gets tired and you're looking for one more of a padding to your right side. The end of the race is always the most intense. That's uh, what counts, you know. You gotta be ready at the end and be in position. Uh, typically, if you're on the lead lap, you've got a good shot at a top 10 finish. Uh, a lot of our races come down to green-white checkered finishes, which means there'll be a caution with only two laps left, and it's a restart, and you've gotta be able to get everything you can out of your race car. From a 51-1 to a 51-05, that's not going to advance. And Truex now here's Trevor Bain. Bain trying, looking good. He's trying to bump back in. It's gonna be close. I think he'll make it. Whoa, ninth, yeah. ninth fastest, Trevor Bank. So after the race, when you get out, you've been on the brakes all day, uh, spiking the pressure up to 1,200 pounds of brake pressure. So you get out and your left knee's all cramped up. Uh, you're trying to walk away and you're kind of hobbling off the racetrack and uh, you're just cashed. You know, physically, you're worn out. Uh, mentally, you are destroyed after one of those races. Uh, the whole time you're riding three, four wide on the racetrack and you're inches from another guy going 200 miles an hour. So uh, after three hours of that, you want a nap. <laughs> For me, it normally takes a couple hours to be over the race. Uh, my wife and I kind of, I'd say the only argument we ever get in is like in the rental car after the race because I've been going 200 miles an hour and now I'm bobbing and weaving through traffic trying to get out of the race traffic. And I mean, we're only doing like 60, but to me it feels like 10 miles an hour. So my tolerance for being close to people is a little bit off and my speed tolerance is off. So she's always like, all right, you're not in a race car anymore. But it takes me probably like two hours to mentally just get out of the race. The drivers aren't the only ones in NASCAR who need to be super fit. Guys like Blake Holland, who work on the pit crew, have to be strong and extremely fast. We talked to Blake on Sunday, huddled under the awning of his team's hauler as it poured rain. Yeah, pretty much um, I take a, the tire uh, to the right side of the car, off the wall, it's 65 pounds. Um, and my job pretty much is to run and uh, throw it on the car in a half a second and um, go do it on the other side. Blake is on the pit crew for driver Matt Kenseth's car. 
and he is well known on pit row for his exceptional fitness. He's completed two Ironmans and 12 half marathon events. All that training keeps him primed for a pretty intense job. Yeah, you know, I think one of the more, most physical demanding things is the, the length of the season. Um, you know, the season's uh, almost 40 weeks long, and we got to travel and jump off a plane, go to a racetrack, and we sit around, and then all of a sudden we have to go do 10-second pit stops. You know, I think that... Uh, the, the burst of um, doing different kinds of sprints and speed work helps out a lot because, you know, we go from a stop to a straight sprint um, around a race car. So I think doing a lot of directional changing and sprinting um, is a big benefit with, uh, with the run training. A 40-week season of traveling is no joke. So it's easy to understand why it can be hard to fit running into your daily routine. But it's not just drivers and pit crew members realizing the benefits of tacking a run onto their day. Mechanics like Bobby Dell, who works as the engine tuner for driver Jamie McMurray's car, regularly pound the pavement. Let's see, I, I started in 2009 because I saw a guy the year before that works in NASCAR train and complete a marathon. And at the time I was like, feeling a little bit bad about myself because I wasn't really doing anything active and I saw that it was possible so I started running and then I did the uh, Pat Tillman run in Arizona that next spring and uh, and then in, at the end of 2009 I did a half marathon and it's kind of just grown since then. Nick Case works on the same team as Bobby. He's their car's front end mechanic. They've been working together since 2010 and in 2012 Bobby got Nick into running too. I guess the first time we started running was we were out in Sonoma and there was a handful of us that were going to go to the Golden Gate Bridge and run there and back, like into San Francisco and back. And uh, it all kind of snowballed from there. Started going to run club with Bobby and after that he's like, oh, let's do a couple 5Ks. So he did that and then a couple halves and then a full together. It's fun, sure, to train and race together. But as Bobby explains, running serves a serious function for these guys. For me, it's physical and mental. On the mental side, we're, we're under stress. Um, it's a high-pressure environment, so you, you get that feeling when you're running that you can conquer a lot of things, uh, especially when you're continuing to meet your goals and things like that. So it helps out on a mental side. And then physically, we like it when it gets hot in the summertime and when things get rough because that's when we shine and we, we see that some people struggle and it actually, you know, makes us feel good. Being able to perform under fatigue has definitely helped out. When it gets to 110 in the garage, I mean, it's not too bad for us. It also prepares them for the unexpected. Nick remembers an incident at the track in 2012 before he'd gotten serious about running. We had a, a right front blowout in Michigan in 2012, and we had rubbed the sway bar arm off. So we had to run back to the toolbox and grab one. Well, I was... Probably like a half mile, like yeah. sprinting as hard as you so, can go. So I got back to the pit box with the sway bar arm and thought I was going to black out. Like, couldn't breathe, getting dizzy. I'm like... Don't forget to mention what you had on. I had a fire suit on too, so they're pretty thick. They don't breathe real, real well. So uh, I'm like, all right, I got to get in shape. So Sonoma was a couple weeks after that. And I'm like, well, okay, I'll come do the bridge run with you guys. And I knew at that point it was time to get in shape. These days, Bobby and Nick make sure nothing gets in the way of their runs. I mean, we, we always make time. It's, it's just, uh, let's see, uh, what, last year we left right from Indianapolis, 
Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Um, brought our running clothes to the track on Saturday. Garage closed at like four in the afternoon. We changed and- uh, 12 miles that day? We did at least 12, maybe more than that. So despite insane travel and work schedules, all different members of the NASCAR community are increasingly turning to running, not only to get fit, but to get better at the jobs they love. People on other teams we've had come run with us. Um, the days are long and, and it, the, the work is hard, so people have jumped in and, and you know worked on their health, so it's cool. The race that Trevor Bain and Landon Castle were competing in, the Exalta We Paint Winners 400, yes, that is the name of an actual sporting event, ended up being pushed back to Monday because of rain. Trevor did great, placing 13th overall out of 40 drivers. Landon was involved in a wreck, an occupational hazard in race car driving, and finished 36th. For photos and exclusive videos from the Pocono Raceway, including a pit crew in action, go to runnersworld.com audio. And now it's time for The Kick and our preview of the Olympic track and field trials with Sarah Lorge Butler and Kit Fox. Well, Sarah, it's the Tuesday before the Olympic track trials, and both of us are headed down there. I'm not quite packed yet, but um, got to ask you, what are the key storylines that we're going to be looking out for? Yeah, it starts on Friday night in Eugene, Oregon, and the first event that I'm interested in seeing is the men's 10,000 meters. Um, the big storyline in that race is Galen Rupp, who already has earned a spot on the U.S. Olympic team by virtue of winning the Olympic marathon trials. But he'll be trying to find out if he can also compete in the 10,000 meters. So that should be an interesting storyline to watch there. Well, so um, definitely going to be a rup show while we're out there. But who else is in this race? And the 10,000 meters is interesting. I can't wait to see what kind of shape Ben True is in. He was in shape to earn his first spot on the Olympic team in 2012, but he had Lyme disease and didn't run very well at the trials. So he was sort of heartbroken. I think he had two fourth place finishes. He is in really good shape. He just ran a blazing fast 1,500 meters. So it'll be interesting to see what he does. Also, he's married to an Olympian. His wife, Sarah, has already qualified for the Olympics in the triathlon. Well, and um, on this first day, it's like jam-packed action. Obviously, we have the marquee men's 10,000, but I see the 800 is also starting, and that just looks like there's a lot of talent. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, the 800 gets underway with the heats. Um, they don't put so many people on the track in one time in the 800, um, but the women's 800 is particularly interesting because 37 women have hit the time they needed to make it to the trials and have declared that they are going to run. It just speaks to the depth of talent in U.S. elite women's distance running right now that 37 women can be entered into the 800. And on the men's side in the 800, it looks like there's going to be a lot of drama. There are some interesting characters on the men's side. You've got Nick Simmons, who's sort of best known for standing up for athletes' rights and being an entrepreneur and auctioning off part of his skin. Um, his deltoid. His to deltoid, be exact. yes. <laughs> you know, how is he going to do? But he always comes to race, and, you know, he's been an Olympian many times. Also, you've got Boris Berrien, who was involved in a contract dispute with Nike up until last week. Finally, Nike dropped the lawsuit. 
Barbarian will be racing wearing New Balance spikes. But the question is, has this whole legal finagling taken so much out of him that he is not in top condition? And then you have a youngster, Donovan Brazier, who was up until recently running for Texas A&M, where he set a collegiate record in the 800 meters. It was a record that had stood for 50 years, last held by Jim Ryan. He broke it 50 years to the day after it was set. Um, He's the fastest guy in the field right now. You know, we don't know what company he's running for yet. We'll see who he turns up wearing at the trials. He is 19, and he's actually just turned pro. So we'll see how he does. So we have the privilege of seeing all this action unfold trackside from Hayward Field. But how can our listeners watch? NBC is showing 30 hours of coverage between its network and NBC Sports, and they're streaming on their website. Of course, you can go to runnersworld.com for all the latest coverage, runnersworld.com slash Olympic trials. And we'll be doing Facebook Live videos to wrap up every evening's action. Plus, we'll be live tweeting the distance races, the men's and women's 3,000-meter steeplechase, the men's and women's 5,000 meters, and the men's and women's 10,000 meters. Okay, so are there any other athletes that we haven't touched on that you're really excited to watch run in person? I'm interested to see Kate Murphy. She's only 16 years old. She's still in high school in Virginia, and she'll be running in the women's 1,500 meters. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there's Bernard Lagat, who's 41, and he's going for his fifth Olympic team. He's declared for both the 10,000 meters and the 5,000 meters. It's not clear yet which or both he'll run. Um, and then there's the rematch between Molly Huddle and Emily Infeld in the women's 10,000 meters. People might remember how at last year's World Championships, Molly Huddle celebrated too early. She put her arms up too early, celebrating a bronze medal, and Infeld was able to sneak past her and actually snag the bronze medal. So they'll be meeting again on Saturday in the women's 10,000 meters. It'll be interesting to see how that one plays out. Are you looking forward to anything, Kit? Well, obviously, there's like going to be a ton of great action on the track, but honestly, I know we work at Runner's World, but I am so excited to see the hammer throw. This has just been a new obsession of mine to watch YouTube videos of, it's just like a really technically beautiful, awesome event, and probably won't be able to cover it, Sarah. I know you're going to say no, but I'm going to be there. There's a whole day devoted to the hammer throwing action, and I'm going to be in the stands rooting on my favorite hammer throwers. Um, Also, definitely looking forward to the food. You can find uh, me likely at Tracktown Pizza several times. (laughs) I'll be at Prince Puckler's just off of Hayward Field getting some nice ice cream. Okay, but... I think I need to go finish up packing. I really don't want to forget my toothbrush. So um, I will see you at the airport tomorrow, Sarah. Okay, see you in Eugene. And that's it for this week's show. To those of you who have been leaving us ratings and reviews on iTunes, thank you very much and please keep them coming. And now that we are part of the Panoply Network, We're looking forward to hearing from those of you who are coming from Stitcher or Google Play or wherever you're finding your podcasts. This week's episode was produced by Sylvia Ryerson, Mervyn Deganos, Christine Fennessy, and Brian Dalek. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. I hope you'll join us next week to hear an audio excerpt of Shoe Dog, the new memoir by Nike co-founder Phil Knight that's been on the bestseller list for several weeks. 
Then I'll have a conversation with Olympic gold medalist and running icon Frank Shorter about the enduring legacy of Steve Prefontaine, who was Nike's first endorsed athlete and, as Phil Knight tells it, the beating heart of everything that Nike stood for. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening.